Intergenerational connections is one of the key expressions of the church I'm serving, University Baptist mm. Church of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And we've discovered mm -hmm. uh, the spiritual and missional and relational value of connecting members from across all generations. So I wonder if you could take us just a little deeper into, um, you know, spiritually, relationally, and missionally, why intergenerational uh, formation and connections are, are so important. Mm, that's a whole book of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, didn't I say this podcast was going to be about five hours long? So. I did. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> I do think that intergenerational Christians experiences, especially and uniquely, um, spiritually grow us up. I, I just really think they do. I do think there's a place for the more siloed ministries, but I think there's just something rich and wonderful about being with people who are coming along behind you and who are ahead of you on the journey. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlor, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Holly Catterton-Allen. She's a professor of family science and Christian ministry at Lipscomb University. She's authored several books and countless articles, including Intergenerational Christian Formation. Dr. Allen, thank you for joining the conversation. Glad to be here with you. So you've authored numerous books on the topic, trained uh, academically around family science, and you also lead two uh, national ecumenical conferences, uh, Intergenerate and the Children's Spiritual Summit. So when choosing your vocation, vocational path, uh, why was this the focus? I was part of a church in the 1990s. It was a church plant, and we began meeting on Sunday evenings in small groups. They were intergenerational small groups. And I began to experience in those small groups something I had not seen in my years as a children's minister or just teaching Sunday school. I began to see children in these settings pray with, pray for their parents, um, minister to their parents and with their parents and other adults. And I was intrigued by this, not just what I was seeing in the children, but also in the teens. And really among all of us, these intergenerational small groups were what I would say would be hot houses for spiritual growth and development. 
And I began to ask the question, what is it about intergenerational settings that tends to grow us up? And I, after some years, four years with that church, we moved out to California and um, began, I began a doctoral program with that question in mind. What is it about intergenerational experiences that, Christian experiences that are, what's so spiritually maturing about that? And I thought I would just look it up somewhere, but nobody was asking that question in the late 1990s. That, that was the years of seeker sensitive and huge children's ministries, uh, sort of entertainment oriented. So it, it brought together my, certainly my interest in intergenerational Christian experiences, but the construct I was looking at was spiritual formation, especially for children, but it's for all of us. So I brought those two together. And since 2000, those have been my areas of interest. Uh, some years I would lean more toward the children's spirituality piece. And uh, then these last eight years before I wrote um, this book on resilience, most of my focus was on intergenerational peace, which of course includes children, but it's really about all the generations of the church. So that brought those two together. But all of this began uh, with the church plant that we were part of in the 1990s, where we gathered as a church in small groups in homes, and they were intergenerational groups. And that set my heart on fire, and uh, I'm still pursuing the answer to that. It still captivates me. It is both of these are deep passions in me. And before we get to the new book, um, I'd like to talk about your work around intergenerational ministry. Um, most of us listening to, uh, to this, um, you know, grew up in a siloed church experience. When uh, you were a kid, we did children's ministry. When you were a teen, you did youth ministry. When you were in college, you did, you know, young adult uh, ministry, if you catch my drift. In what ways was this type of ministry important for our formation and in what ways did it limit the intergenerational capacity of our spiritual journey and the churches that we were a part of? Well, I would say up front, I do think it's a both and enterprise, not an either or. And some people interpreted by our book, Intergenerational Christian Formation, as being anti-children's ministry or anti-youth ministry, and, and we are not. I think there are important spiritual benefits uh, for meeting with people in your own age group. Uh, when the seniors gather together, they need to be processing some of the things that they're facing, uh, losing a spouse, entering an older age, leaving the prime of your life when you were in leadership and entering a season where you're less so. What is that like? What does that mean spiritually? You need to be with other senior adults uh, processing that. And the same for youth group. They have identity issues and social development issues that need to be managed and dealt with spiritually with other youth. But much of our spiritual formation needs to happen when we are with people of all ages, people further ahead of us on the journey, far ahead, or people just immediately ahead. It's especially, I think, beneficial to be with people who are a season ahead of you, for youth to be with 20-somethings, for 20-somethings to be with 30-somethings, 30-somethings to be with 40-somethings, stage of life kinds of things where you're anticipating what it's going to look like. What does it look like to be a widow spiritually? What, what kinds of things are you dealing with? I'm, I'm not dealing with that right now, but if the demographics that are common um, hold true in our marriage, it's likely that I will be widowed. And um, at some point, in 10 years or so, I'll need to start spending some time uh, with women who've been widowed and, and walk with them through their uh, journey uh, to anticipate and to listen in on and see what God is doing in them. Uh, but that's true all up and down the spectrum. We also need to be playing that role for those who are coming along behind us, not necessarily younger than us. Uh, I've, I've been friends with a woman for mm, 35 years or so, and she's been my spiritual director all those years. She's younger than me. We, we didn't know that word, spiritual director. We only found that about 10 years ago, but that's who she has been in, with me, but she's younger than me. So it's not necessarily by age or even by stage. Sometimes it's just people who are spiritually in a different place, and we can learn to love better with them and see what God is doing in their lives and how they articulate that. And that can help us begin to do that as well. I 
I think that what happened in those silo years was that um, children left the children's ministry and went directly into youth ministry. And then they went directly to college or out in the adult world. And when they came back to church, they didn't know that church. The youth group that they knew was not there. Uh, the adults that were occupying that worship space, they didn't know. And I think it has been very disruptive for young people not to have established relationships up and down the age spectrum uh, along the way. People to lean into, to be mentored by, and to love and cherish, just to get to know people in other age groups. So I think it's been detrimental. I think a lot of good things happened. And interestingly, the people who are in our churches now, many of them who grew up in churches, as you said, grew up in these silo ministries, and it worked well for them. And they expect it for their own children, and they're not all that excited in general for becoming more intentionally intergenerational. Because for them, it seemed to be a spiritually formative and, and good process for them. They stayed with it. It just doesn't represent all of those who are no longer with us, uh, for whom that process did not work as well. So I think it's it's hard to hear that when the people saying, well, it was great for me. I want it for my kids. And we, we seem to think maybe that's 100%, but actually it's really not because we know we've lost 50, 60% of people who grew up in the siloed ministries. So I think that's what we need to be paying attention to as well. Intergenerational connections is one of the key expressions of the church I'm serving, University of Baptist mm -hmm. Church of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And we've discovered mm -hmm. uh, the spiritual and missional and relational value of connecting members from across all generations. So I wonder if you could take us just a little deeper into, um, you know, spiritually, relationally, and missionally, why intergenerational uh, formation and connections are, are so important. Mm, that's a whole book of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't I say this podcast was going to be about five hours long? So I did. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> I do think that intergenerational Christians experiences, especially and uniquely um, spiritually grow us up. I, I just really think they do. I do think there's a place for the more siloed ministries, but I think there's just something rich and wonderful about being with people who are coming along behind you and who are ahead of you on the journey to share life with, uh, to experience what it's going to be like uh, to be um, leaning into Jesus when you're a young single adult. Um, our teens have a hard time envisioning that. And when the, our 20-somethings right now are having a hard time saying, what does that look like? If they didn't have people ahead of them when they were in the youth group that they could look at and say, what's it like to be a 27-year-old who loves Jesus, but you don't seem to have a place in the church? What does that mean? What does that look like? And of course, the rest of us in the church need to be welcoming and receiving those, especially those single 20-somethings who are, they, they seem to be not, they don't have a group for them at church. There's the married group and there's the married with little ones and the married with teens and then the empty nesters and you have all these things that are surrounding uh, kind of uh, pocketed into the marriage piece and then our 20-somethings single 20-somethings and I have a, a son who who fits that demographic and uh, it's been uh, he has just focused on it and said I'm going to be here I'm going to find a way to, to make this work but not everybody's able to do that uh, but I know what he has struggled with up until that point, your church has provided for you um, the spiritually formative activities that you need. You have a group to be with, a place to belong. And in your 20-somethings, you still need a place to belong. And if you're going to create some of those, if you're going to have some of those spiritually formative places, you might need to create them yourself. So what would that look like? I know that the 20-somethings that I know are saying they want to be with families. Um, they, they miss children. They miss being with adults who aren't grappling with the very same thing that they are. Putting all the 26-year-olds together and saying, you know, how do you navigate life? They don't know yet. They need someone who's been around a little bit longer to help them navigate what they're navigating. And it's better to be with, with people who've um, successfully navigated some of that than with others who are going, I don't know what I'm doing. Do you know what you're doing? No. So they need others. Uh, for that spiritual maturity, but also just 
ordinary um, getting through life. Uh, 20-somethings are at the such a crucial part in their life. They're choosing marriage partners. They're choosing careers. They're, cho they're landing into an identity of who I am in Christ. We have said that was really youth group stuff. And there's a place for it there. But I do believe in society today, I think it's our 20-somethings who are grappling most obviously with who am I? Who am I to be? Who do I belong to? Where are my values? And they need people around them who've gone through that and can help them, can listen to them and um, commiserate with them and encourage them uh, while they're grappling with these very important key issues. So that's a particular demographic that I think all the generations need to be around. They need, they need a generation to serve. They can serve the youth group amazingly well. And they can certainly, of course, lean into children. They can also be of great benefit to the oldest in our congregations who love to be around younger people, who love them well, and who need them. So being needed and serving works well across the generations but also being poured into and received and cared for and encouraged and um, belonging with people who aren't just like you. We all need that. Uh, probably the most needy group in our church, most needy groups would be our 20-somethings who aren't married yet and our seniors, our oldest members. And they need the generations around them to help sustain them, uphold them, encourage them, uh, listen to them, love on them, and they also need people around them that they can pour their own energy or wisdom into. So we need each other, and we need all the generations for all the ways that we are growing up, not just spiritually, but relationally, as you said, and understanding who we are and having a place to belong. Well, your your work has, has laid out uh, the theological impl implications for all this. There's some some pretty remarkable studies recently on the uh, by psychologists and anthropologists and other health experts that have discovered the cognitive and social and emotional and psychological benefits of intergenerational connections. And these connections lead to the development um, and well-being of children, of teens, of young adults, adults and senior adults in pretty remarkable ways. Um, you know, one of the more remarkable decisions uh, made by the church of my upbringing was to pair me with prayer partners, uh, Bill and Mary Lou Booth, a couple in their 60s when I was in sixth grade, mind you. And, and once a month, they would drop a card in the mail to let me know they were praying for me. And, and without connecting the dots until much later, they were uh, actually volunteering in the areas of the church I was participating in intentionally interacting with me. And still to this day, uh, nearly 30 plus years later, I still get a message from them once a month to, to let me know that they are praying for me. And, and this is just one example of how a church intentionally chose to create intergenerational connections among their members. Um, what are some of the other creative ways you've seen this done within churches? What I say to children's ministers and youth ministers often ask me, uh, they'll just basically say, we don't have much power to make our church in general more intentionally intergenerational. What can we do within our silos? And what I suggest to them is whatever they're planning, if it's the Easter egg hunt or if it's trampoline night or whatever they're doing, locate another generation to invite, to include. Now, on trampoline night, you wouldn't want to invite the most senior members of the church, but you could certainly invite the 20-somethings. Uh, say, join us. Remember how much you love that? Come and show off your skills or come and spot us as we jump on the trampoline. Uh, for the Easter egg hunt, I mean, invite those seniors, especially the seniors who have no grandchildren nearby. Uh, they'll love to be there, and they can sit and watch and enjoy and participate and they will love being included and participating. The children will love having people around them cheering them on. So that's one very easy way to become more intentionally intergenerational without having to restructure the church. I mean, if to really become intentionally intergenerational as a whole body of Christ, it takes a lot of uh, input from all the leaders of the church. It has to be a value 
that the church has decided this is who we are. And sometimes people don't have the power to make that happen. So starting at those uh, uh, less church-wide levels, those are ways to do that. Um, the youth group, once they begin to realize that they enjoy being with other generations, they will come up with ideas as well, especially ways to serve the oldest, uh, but also to be blessed by them. Uh, during our, I remember um, one church that we were with every year, this, at the senior graduation, we would have a big graduation party for the seniors graduating. And they had been, as you were, paired up with an older couple or an older person as freshmen. And that couple or that person had been part of their journey for their freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year. And then they spoke and uh, spoke a blessing over that graduating senior. Those were always very moving moments for the senior student, but also for those senior older minister people in the church, the, our senior saints, I guess I should call them, who got to speak over them and they got to bless one another. It was, it was truly remarkable the kinds of things that were spoken over these students and then the response of the students to those who had loved and cared for them, who weren't as close to them as their parents, but because of that could stand back and see all the wonderful things in this student that uh, parents who are so close and so uh, burdened with responsibility of training sometimes overlook. So those were, that was a sweet thing to do. I do think um, that our middle adults need a lot of support from our senior adults. Our middle adults are facing a season where um, almost every family has one child who has wandered away, either during their high school years, maybe middle school, high school years, or college years, or 20-somethings. They've, you know, wandered away for weeks or months or a year or so, and they've come back, or they have gone into years of maybe drug use or just are very far away. And our middle adults need the support and the belief of the senior saints who have been through such heartache. The church that we're a part of right now, I noticed last year on Monday evenings, there was a, a gathering of parents to pray for their, um, I think they called it prodigal children. Um, and they met together every week just to pray and, and for and encourage each other uh, to stay faithful to our children. Um, they're still our children. We cannot because we recognize that God in his sovereignty has given us free will. We cannot call our children back. We cannot make them come back. There's really not much we can actually do, but we can pray for them and we can learn to speak positively to them. We can learn that from each other and we can uphold and sustain one another as we weep and as we grieve together. And we can rejoice together when some of those prodigals come home. So it's a, another piece of this that we've not paid a lot of attention to, but we can be more intentional about and provide such support for those who are grieving in intergenerational ways. So I think that's another way to do that. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. 
Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This week's CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by the Youth Theology Network. They're a resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. As a mentor to high school students who are considering ministry, you know your work is important, but it can also be lonely and overwhelming. With YTN, you'll find the information you need for building or scaling your vocational discernment programs, as well as resources to help students take their next faithful step. To awaken what's possible for high school students in your life, please visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. So you have a new book out, Forming Resilient Children. This book is a guide to uh, the role of spiritual formation and the healthy development of children and their families. The premise of the book is around the characteristic of resilience. Um, why is this such an important trait within children developmentally? It's an important trait for children developmentally, but actually, of course, it's an important trait for all of us. It's very scriptural. You know, read about perseverance and fortitude. Uh, those are kinds of uh, qualities that we need to be developing. My, my basic premise is that as we nurture children spiritually, it is also all the ways that we nurture children spiritually, those very ways also foster resilience. And the whole world is recognizing that we need resilience. Our children need it. Adults need it. Our young adults need it uh, to cope with ordinary problems that we face, but also the harder adversities that come our way and even trauma. When, we, when I first wrote the book, and I, it's still in there, and I really probably needed to change it when it went to, before it went to press last February, but um, I said there are basically two populations of children, those who've had really good enough parents, good enough schools, good enough churches, life has gone fairly well, and then those kids who faced, you know, had some bumps, uh, some just um, smaller difficulties, bullying, things like that. Uh, but others who've, you know, had parents divorce or they've lost a sibling uh, to death or they have faced uh, chronic illness or faced population-wide traumas like Katrina, things like that. So I kind of divided up in, into two saying, well, we need to be nurturing and fostering resilience in those who've had great trauma already, but also we need to be preparing our children who haven't hit any big snags yet because as we know, somewhere along the line, they're going to fail at something. Some friend group is not going to want them. They're not going to make the basketball team or the varsity team. They're going to be bullied. They're going to be hurt. Um, and we want them, we want to prepare them for the times when, when the adversity comes. Since uh, I turned it in, um, really, I've begun thinking, of course, about COVID. And almost all populations of children now have had to face some kind of adversity because of COVID. I mean, some have lost a grandparent and some 140,000 children I've read uh, have lost a parent to COVID. I was very surprised to read that stat not long ago. Uh, but even little children have dealt with changes in their life. Our little two and a half year old goes to a little preschool now where he has to wear a mask. I mean, that's not great adversity, but it's something. He's having to deal with something that's out of the ordinary. All the children that went back to school last year, we sometimes they were in school, sometimes they were out of school. Sometimes they did school from home, uh, Zooming in every day or some weeks, one week at school, one week at home. So lots of adjustments. Uh, some children have had COVID 
and have had ongoing issues with that. So actually, I'm not sure we could say there are two populations now. I, I guess we would say that all the children that we know of have hit some bumps now uh, in relation to COVID besides other things that have come their way. And we know that it, um, when you can persevere, when you can push through, when you can stay the course, uh, you can manage life better. Um, things go better for you and for the people around you. And to, the way to make that happen, to lean into that is to nurture our children's relationships with themselves, with others, and with God. And that's the great connection that I make in the book, that all that we know about resilience, that we've been learning from the resilience scholars and the resilience research, is that most of the ways that we can foster resilience are ways that we're already leaning into as we nurture our children's relationship with themselves and others and with God, which is pretty wonderful. I mean, I didn't know that until I uh, was working with populations of children whose parents were incarcerated or who were recent refugees or who were in generational poverty. And I began reading a lot of the resilience literature and realized that in my course on nurturing children spiritually, we were dealing with the same kinds of interventions, that the things that I was doing uh, that would help these children spiritually would also help them endure. It was a marvelous discovery. Perhaps others have known it before, but it was new for me. And it's been delightful to bring those the two bodies of literature about nurturing children spiritually and fostering resilience, bringing those together. Trauma, uh, grief, uh, disappointments uh, are, are not only part of, of being an adult, it's something that many children experience. And this pandemic, as you've been alluding to, has certainly elevated the proclivity of children to experience these things earlier and, and more often. Obviously, this pandemic will affect everyone in ways we will not know for, for years to come. Um, however, you know, considering we're not out of this thing yet, what can parents do now to leverage this unfortunate chapter in our lives for developing something positive within their children? Well, the, the great premise of the book is to nurture the child's relationship with his himself or herself. And the way to do that is to listen to your children, to ask good questions, say, how are you feeling today? Uh, I understand and commiserate with them. Um, hear what they have to say. Don't shut them down and say, we need to get right on through this, but just listen. Uh, we need to help them understand their feelings and uh, what is hard about their life right now and to voice that. And we can do that by reading children's books to them and saying, who are you in the story? And when they say who they are, you can say, well, tell me more about that. What makes you think you're that person in the story? And they begin to reveal who they are to you. They might eventually ask you, who are you in the story? And you can say, and so that's beginning uh, to nurture that child others relationship. And children really need this. They need to be listening to who you are and who their sister is and who their brother is. Um, those kinds of relationships uh, nurture them spiritually, but also all of the resilience literature repeatedly says that resilience, at the heart of resilience, we find relationships. So that piece of the spirituality literature and the resilience literature completely intersects helping children listen to others, care about, have empathy with and for other people, have sympathy for other people, um, listen to their friends, uh, join their friends in their sorrow and in their rejoicing. Those are things we do and we teach our children in ordinary ways, but it's also, these are things that help them be resilient. The other piece is the self of the child God relationship. Um, I didn't grow up in a setting where I knew that there was such a thing. I learned about God. I learned stories about God, who he is, what he did. I learned the stories. I learned what I was supposed to do. I learned what right things to do. I did not know that God knew me and that I could know God. So that's been an adult understanding for me. But I now know because I believe that children are born as spiritual beings, very capable 
of that child self, child others, and child God relationship, that we can begin to foster that in children very young. We can say things like, um, where did you see God today? And little children will easily start saying things like, I saw him in the yellow leaves or the rainbow or the blue, blue, blue sky or that circle that was around the moon. So they begin to see it first in God's creation and we can foster that. And you can also help them see how God is at work in their lives and in yours. And you say, well, I saw God today at work. Somebody helped me with the copy machine that wasn't working. And I was very frustrated. And this lovely person came along. And I thank God for sending that person to help me so I wouldn't be so frustrated. Or you can say, God helped me today to ask forgiveness. I was very angry with someone last week and spoke out of turn. And I, he gave me the courage today uh, to ask their forgiveness. So when you share that with your child, they begin to see that God is at work in you. And then eventually you can say things like, how is God, what is God saying to you today? This is what God said to me. What is God saying to you? That can start very young at three or four or five, um, nurturing that child God relationship. I wish I had had that. Uh, as an adult, I began to look back to see how God was at work in my life as a child. And I didn't have language for it then. But when I was 11, I, was, I remember having this, this moment where I was just feeling unloved and, I don't know, pre-adolescent angst, I guess. And I remember throwing myself on the bed and this, this, you know, nobody cares about me. And clearly I received, and at the time I didn't have language for it, but there was a voice that said, you are my daughter. You are my beloved daughter. I love you. And had I told anyone about that at the time, they would have gotten me some psychological help, I suppose. Uh, but as an adult, I now see and I can say, and I have language to say that was God speaking to me, saying that you are indeed loved. You are my beloved daughter. And I've looked back at other hard things in my childhood and realized that God was present with me. Where was, where were you, God, when this was happening? And in my mind's eye, I can look around and see that he was actually there. And I didn't know it at the time, but he has given me the comfort now of, of showing me where he was and what he was doing. But we can do that in the present with our children so that when your child or your grandchild breaks their, uh, their arm falling out of a swing and you go to the emergency room with them and later when you're talking, you can say, you know, Jesus was there. And they'll say, oh, really, was he there? Did you see him? And I said, oh yeah, I think he was there right in that room. Do you remember that empty chair in the room? That was Jesus. He was sitting right there. And they say, how do you know? And you can say, well, for one thing, he was with me and he made me calm and I'm not a calm person at all, but I was calm when you broke your arm and we went to the emergency room. So Jesus was there. He was right there in that room with us. And they begin to see God who is present with them. And when it's an ordinary conversation like that, it's so easy for children to live into that reality so that when they're 13 and when they're 17, those realities exist for them. And you can remind them when they broke their arm and Jesus was there. They'll have hard things that happen when they're in their teens, but remembering that Jesus was there all along and remembering it in the moment and talking about it in the moment will create memories where they can go back and visit. I think probably the most important thing, although I think the child self is terribly important and certainly the child others is important. But I think that that child God peace is probably the most important one. The resilience factors, the resilience research talks about 10, 12, 15 factors that can contribute to children's um, resilience. They, they protect them, they're buffers for when hard things come. And by the way, one of those, even in the secular literature, says that faith and hope and the belief that life has meaning is one of those. So it can be spirituality or religiosity. Um, but they don't talk much about God per se, but certainly we can talk about God. But I believe that even if some of those others or many of those other factors are not there, and I'll talk about those more in a minute if you'd like, but I believe that a child who knows a God who is present 
who understands the enormity of what they've experienced, who's offering them unconditional love, who is at work bringing about justice, who's orchestrating healing and a restoration process. Those children possess the most powerful resilience armor available. A child who knows that they are a child of God can sustain, that knowledge can sustain them in pretty devastating circumstances. So that's why I think that's the most important one. So as I think about spiritual formation for children, it's become increasingly clear over the last decade plus that the space and time families used to give their local church has dwindled significantly. And, and I'm not bemoaning this shift, but merely pointing out the reality of it. Uh, and this is really, this is a two-part question. Uh, the first is, how do churches in the limited time granted to them by families train and equip parents as spiritual formation caregivers for their children? That has become increasingly more important uh, during COVID as many families were at home with their children. I found in our small intergenerational group that when we, we did go ahead and meet uh, outside much of that year, and some of the parents said, we can't wait till we get back to church and we have classes for the children. And the other half were saying, this has been really wonderful to be more directly engaged in the spiritual formation of our children. We wanna know more about it. So I do think that intergenerational small groups can begin to um, model for parents how to have these ordinary spiritual conversations. I think most parents think they're supposed to do a devotional every day, uh, that that's the main way you spiritually form your children. I think my generation and maybe the next one down, um, we were in families that tried to do those and they felt very forced and some children just wouldn't participate, they felt very awkward, and they rebelled against them. Um, and so I think we have found that for the most part, those did not do what we hoped they would do. Rather, I think ordinary conversations uh, as you go about life, and I think it's wonderful every night. We, we did this with our children every night. We tucked them in with a story, with prayers, with songs, and they loved it partly because, you know, it, it allowed them to stay up a little bit later. So there was a plus for them, but they always wanted one more story or one more song, uh, and they would pray and pray and pray long, long, long prayers um, to stay up a little longer. But in the meantime, wonderful things were happening. What I would incorporate now if I were to do that again, and I have incorporated with my grandchildren, is asking questions of the children in the stories of, of my children or my grandchildren. Um, you know, what was going on in David's mind? Um, what happened with that bear and that lion? How did he know that God would be with him when he was with Goliath? What was going through David's mind? Um, and then I, I asked questions like, what do you think God was saying to the little boy who shared his bread and fish with Jesus in the crowd? What was the little boy saying to God? And what was God saying to the little boy? Those kinds of ordinary questions about the stories, not just reading the stories, but helping them enter the story, helping the children enter the story and realize that God was at work in those children. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the uh, little girl who was captured by Naaman's armies, and she became a slave, in fact, in his household. She had no reason to care about him at all. Uh, probably her parents were killed, or if not, they were also taken into slavery elsewhere, probably. But when Naaman has leprosy, she tells him about a prophet back in her land who can heal him. She remembers her God. She remembers this prophet. She remembers the power of that God. And she shares it with one who has made her a slave. I wish we had a name for that little girl, but I have um, asked children, why did she do that? What was God saying to her? What was she saying to God? And I've had children with amazing stories about what might've been going on in her mind. And then we can easily go to that next place. Hmm, what's God saying to you today? And you today, what's God saying to you? And what are you saying to God? When they have a friend who's left them out of a party or when they did very badly on a test that they wanted to do well, or when they didn't get invited to a party. Um, 
what's God saying to you and what are you saying to God? Those are ordinary now conversations that help our child see our, that God is present. He's here. He's working just as he did before. That is what we're hoping for in our children, children who are aware that God is here. He knows me. He sees me. He loves me. He cares about me. He is at work in this world. That is what we want for our children. And it's a fairly ordinary kind of thing to do uh, with children. We have seen it as more formal. And I'm hoping that this book will help parents see that it can be relatively informal and ordinary. Does that address your question? It does. And we kind of, you know, maybe look at this. The second part of the question is, which is how do churches in the limited time granted to them by families create more impactful interaction with the children entrusted to their care? I would say the same thing. Uh, we are still going to be telling the stories of God. That's what we mainly do in our children's ministries up through even maybe middle school and high school. I tend to do more topical things. But in those places where we tell God's story, our goal is to say, who is God? What is he doing? What was he doing? What is he doing? And so all along the way, we say things like, you know, when John Mark, when Paul didn't want John Mark to go with him on a missionary journey, you know, what was John Mark thinking? Um, what would you have felt? Um, why is it it's so hard when we're not chosen by someone. What was God doing in that? That's pretty amazing uh, to take that story, uh, a known story in scripture, but move it past, well, that was hard, to how is it hard today and what is God doing? And of course, Paul went on to do wonderful missionary journeys with Silas and John Mark went on to do uh, wonderful things uh, with someone else. Um, I can't remember who he, Mark, uh, Bartholomew, Barnabas, Barnabas, that's who it was. Uh, so he went uh, on other journeys. So when things seem to have come to an end, how can they go forward? And um, God is still at work today doing that. Taking those stories and moving them past what happened, uh, like the 10 lepers. How many lepers were there? How many said thank you? How many didn't say thank you? You know, those are okay questions, but really, uh, what was going on there? Uh, how did God receive, how did Jesus receive the leper who said, thank you? What was happening in the hearts of the nine who didn't say thank you? Would Jesus have received them later if they came back? Do you think they were grateful? Who might they have told their story to? So redeem that story and, and instead of just changing it into, okay, the goal of the story is to be thankful. That we always have this little nice bow at the end. And instead of unpacking it and saying, what was going on in their hearts? Let's listen to the ones who didn't go back and say, thank you. But maybe they were grateful. How would that have looked? Um, much deeper unpacking of those stories. How was God at work in their hearts as well? Uh, that, that's what I would say to our children's ministers. And I do say that to our children's ministers. Take those stories and move them past what we want the children to learn and the lesson we want them to learn to say what was God doing then what is God doing now and that's that's what we want we want our children to live into a world where the first place they go is to God and say God show me what I need to learn here open my heart to what you're doing that's what we want and we can do that in our children's ministries as well and I would say one thing this is my number one thing this is really sad but I am sort of anti-craft. When we have our children for 47 minutes and we take 23 of those to do, to put cotton balls on sheep, I think we have missed the point. I know we're using it to take up time, but there are wonderful ways to engage children without doing crafts. I'm sorry for all the craft people out there. I think most crafts are not worth the time. That seems maybe a small thing to say, but our 47 minutes need to be focused on how children can come to know God better and how they can be aware that God already knows them and loves them. That's very aside, but it is one of my pet peeves. <laughs> Sorry. I'm actually, I'm chuckling because I'm sitting in my office 
and I'm looking at two of the crafts I made as children, as a child in children's ministry that are sitting up in my office. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I get it. I'm, I'm with you. Um, uh, and but maybe I've kept on to these things longer than I should. Uh, Some children are very blessed. But I have three children. One threw them away on the way out of the classroom. Uh, the second one kept them on the refrigerator and still has them to this day. And my uh, youngest was like, this was a fun thing. I guess I'll keep it for a while. And then she would throw it away. So there are kids who really lean into it. And then mostly kids don't. And if we have two and a half hours we have to kill, I understand. It. I do. I get it. But we are, as you just said, we are down to a very small amount of time with these children. We need to make that time focused on God and what God is doing with them. Well, the book is Raising Resilient Children, and the author is Dr. Holly Catterton Allen. Uh, Dr. Allen, thank you for uh, making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your brilliant continued work of providing resources to lead to intergenerational thriving. Thank you. This was a delight to be with you, Andy. Thank you for having me. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in Black Church Studies, Rural Ministries, and Pastoral Care, as well as two Exploring Ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 